Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. At my high school in Colorado, A River Runs Through It was a required reading in English class. Our teacher wasn't a fly angler, but the book was chosen as an example of classic literature, the great American novel. I recently reread the book and was once again drawn into the enchanted childhood of Norman and Paul, frolicking about an untamed Montana. Now my home, the mountains and rivers mentioned in the story are far more familiar to me. I discovered that a companion to A River Runs Through It, penned by Norman's son John, called Home Waters, was recently released. I devoured the book and subsequently reached out to Mr. McLean, and I'm honored and humbled that he has agreed to join me here today. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. Well, thank you for having me, Laura. Well, and I know it's been 45 years since A River Runs Through It was published, and Norman was in his 70s when he wrote this book. And um, now that you are in the same stage as your life and you wrote Home Waters, did it feel like Home Waters was destined to be written at this stage in your life? Uh, I didn't start out to write uh, a memoir, which is what people call it. I call it a chronicle because it extends far beyond my life. Uh, I started out to write a fish story. <laughs> it was a pretty good story. I caught this enormous rainbow trout on the Blackfoot River, and uh, I'd never seen a rainbow uh, that big on the Blackfoot before, although I fished it all my life. Uh, in my basket or anyone else's. And uh, 
man I was fishing with uh, suggested a few days later that I write the story for uh, his anglers group, which I did. It was kind of fun to write it. It's a nice little story for a, a 30 subscription uh, anglers journal. And another friend of mine uh, saw it or heard about it and said, why don't you write that one for a big sky journal? It sounds like a really good Montana story, you know, a nice local story. I said, okay, so I did, and I wrote it longer, and you know, dealt with a new set of editors, and they give you ideas, and enjoyed it a little more. Uh, then a couple of years went by, uh, and I kind of put it in the past. I mean, I write books. This is, Home Waters is my sixth book, and I was working on other projects. And an editor for uh, HarperCollins was on vacation in Montana, and picked up an old copy of Big Sky Journal, and there was my story. And so he called me up. He said, how'd you like to turn this into a book? And I thought about it and thought, well, you know, I've gone through my writing career uh, having to be compared to my father all the way through. Well, I stood up to that. Uh, but here's, I'd be writing about fishing, <laughs> not fire. And uh, so I'd be taking on a new dimension. But I said, yeah, I do want to do that. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do it is that I had a pretty fat sketchbook. Uh, I've been writing eulogies, uh, talks, uh, graduation, uh, uh, commencement addresses uh, for a very long time that involve the issues uh, and the people that are in home wards. And so when I looked back, I saw I had an awful lot of stuff that could be worked up. Uh, to be part of the book. Now, that is part of the book. Then there were a lot of things that came up uh, that were entirely new that I had never done before. Uh, for example, following Mary Wither Lewis's uh, expedition through the Blackwood Valley on the return trip in 1806, I never traced that at all. I mean, you read the journals, of course, and uh, they mention a few things about the Blackwood Valley. Uh, but I wound up doing that with somebody who really knew about it. We found places where the trail of the Blackfoot Valley was still visible. Uh, the trail that Lewis and uh, centuries and centuries of Native Americans took through that country. So it kept growing. The book kept growing more. And uh, it has an awful lot of moving parts. That's what I absolutely loved about it, John, is that there was so much more than just what I thought was going to be about family. There was a lot of history about the Blackfoot and the trails and their history. I was curious when you were writing this book, because you did go through such great lengths of learning about the history um, between the McLeans, the Byrne family and Montana, was what was one of the things that surprised you the most that you found out that you didn't know? Uh, gee, that's a good question. Uh, I think uh, I wanted to find out uh, where the name Blackfoot River came from. It's obviously the Blackfoot Indians, but uh, in the Lewis journals, uh, it's the Kokalahishkin, which is the Indian name for it, the river of the road to the buffalo. Uh, they used it as kind of, a, they used it not kind of, but as a route uh, from the western side of the mountains uh, out to the buffalo plains. So I started looking, I said, this is a simple, easy question. A lot of people write about the Blackfoot. I have no trouble with this. But I couldn't find out where the first uses of that came from. 
And that kept leading me further and further into the stories of the early exploration uh, of the Blackfoot. I finally found what I, the first reference I can find to it uh, from a trapper outfit that went through there that called it the Blackfoot River and described, talked about the little Blackfoot uh, as distinct from it. The real name is not Big Blackfoot River, that's just a name a river runs through it, and it's the common name. But the U.S. Geological Survey still has a Blackfoot River. So it was finding out about that part of it, and then finding about other parts of it. Uh, once I had traced the Lewis route, I had a view of the Blackfoot Valley that I had never had uh, growing up. From beginning to end, you get up into the high country, you can look out, you can see the whole valley. And then I started digging into the geologic history of it. And I knew some of that. We all know that it was glaciated uh, and so on. I didn't know that Glacial Lake Missoula came up into Clearwater Junction and may have even gotten on toward Ovando. And then you get into the really interesting old science that when Lake Missoula flushed out uh, and caused scablands in, uh, in eastern Washington, there wasn't enough water around Clearwater Junction. It wasn't deep enough, voluminous enough, to cause an awful lot of trouble. And there's still that huge glacial till pile right at Clearwater Junction. Now, if you stop at the gas station there and look out at Carnot uh, Mountains, there's a big round till. And what you can't see is the Blackfoot is right behind it. And then there uh, is the, the granite craggy granite of the granite mountains. And learning all that added an awful lot to my understanding uh, of an area that I've been familiar with all my life and kept peeling the pages off and getting deeper and deeper into it. That was surprising and very satisfying. Did it give you a new appreciation for the for Missoula and Sealy and the places in the waters that you call home? In a kind of a scared way. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there is so much has changed yes. uh, from when I grew up, uh, let alone from when my dad uh, was, was growing up in Missoula, that it, it's kind of scary. Uh, the Blackfoot River is overrun today. Mm. It is way overused. And even when you had a relatively benign uh, state government, uh, nobody was doing anything really to uh, introduce sensible regulation. Uh, you know, if there are three campers on the campsites, uh, and there are too many people using the river, then you just make more campsites and more put-ins. And that seems to be the solution that they want. That's ridiculous. Uh, and they've killed off a lot of what the Blackfoot uh, and that area uh, uh, meant. There are still places I can go and get away from all that. Uh, but it's a lot of hard work to do it, uh, and it shouldn't be. Uh, you know, there are conservation groups that have done great things there. Uh, at the time that uh, River Run Stewart came out, the Blackfoot was a mess. And from Unlimited and Blackfoot Challenge uh, and others have labored. And the local people, the ranchers uh, and the inholders, uh, have labored uh, to make it a fine fishery again. But it is so overused uh, that you don't have the sense of serenity and, and privateness uh, that was an essential part of our understanding of what that river was. Well, and it's honestly reading that book because um, I, you know, I 
reread A River Runs Through It, and I read your book, Home Waters. And there is a little bit of tragedy, of a sense of loss um, from what the waters used to be. And I was talking with my husband about it. I was like, you know, and I think it's everybody feels the way that you feel that fishing is overcrowded. Um, the water is busy and it's like, what do we do about it? And my husband's like, well, it needs to, you know, there needs to be permits for the Blackfoot. And I was like, but then will it, you know, send people to go on the Clark Fork? Like, I think your your book, Home Waters, also makes you question what changes need to be because there's a story about um, all the, with George um, and kind of going back, but I love the story about Back in the day, um, when George was trying to sell his uh, flies, he would go catch all of his fish and went over to Bob Ward's and put the fish on ice on a display case so people can know, like, hey, this is <laughs> this is why this works. Look at these fish. And I just thought to myself, there's no way. I mean, first off, I mean, I just think it's brilliant. And I just love that story because, um, but I just thought to myself, what a loss that you can't even think about taking a fish out of the water and putting it in a case to show your um, your catch for the day, you know? Well, it all started, uh, the overuse thing started right after World War II, uh, when people started going out in the woods uh, in great numbers, in the way they hadn't before. Uh, the state used to beg people before World War II, the state of Montana, and other states would beg people uh, to come out and write about this and encourage people to come and tell them how much uh, many fish they can catch. And if you read the really early accounts, uh, when guys like Paul Bunyan were out there, I mean, they were catching 100 pounds of fish on trip. Uh, and bragging about it and uh, championed for having done so. And of course, all that has changed. And sadly, for the good, you can be both good and sad at the same time. Right. Now, we used to keep fish, and they eat fish a lot. They're wonderful to eat. I don't do that anymore. It took me a long time to get out of that, of uh, able to catch and release. Uh, it was not an easy thing to do, uh, but I did it, and uh, nearly most people do that now with trout. Uh, please, go catch all the pike you can possibly catch. <laughs> Sealy Lake and get them out of there. Because they're, they're trout killers, and uh, they have killed off Sealy Lake as a trout fishery, and it used to be a very fine one. Uh, so, after World War II, you know, the first rubber boats appeared. Uh, we had a neighbor who was a military guy, and he had one of them. And it was a horrible thing. I mean, it must have weighed 100 pounds, and it rustled it around, and it, it leaked, and it was bad. But that was the harbinger of what you have today, which is this fleet of highly capable, uh, maneuverable uh, boats uh, that just form an armada. Uh, on the Blackfoot. That was my father's term for it in his day, that the Spanish Armada comes down there every day and it's awful and so on. If he could see what there is today, I mean, he would be far more horrified than he was at the time. Yeah, I could only imagine what his, I mean, because your thoughts on it were so well put together and I can only imagine the loss of what Norman must feel with the change of scenery that, you know, Montana is getting busier and also the fish not at all where it used to be um i was going to say when reading your book you know you talk a lot about the cabin at sealy lake and um i love 
I love this cabin because I have a cabin in northern Wisconsin and it's a cabin. And I love it that you say this is a cabin. It's not a house with a garage. It's not heated. Um, And I love hearing the stories about you playing and having like this imagination brothers. And I was curious when I was reading that. Do you feel like when you were imagining having brothers, were you trying to take pieces of maybe Paul to try and be like as characters as your brother, as another angler to go fishing with? Well, Paul was uh, always a uh, presence and uh, not kind of a mysterious one. I, what I would wonder is, you know, where is the guy? Yeah. And we hear about him all the time. We know he's around. People talk about him in these kind of hushed tones. So, you know, he's really important. And there are words associated him, associated with him, uh, like greatest fisherman, like you'll never get there, <laughs> and murder, which is an electric word. And when you're five, six, seven years old, and those words coming down at you, you know, it creates something uh, that mature people uh, wouldn't see. So I suppose that. Uh, Among the hundred brothers, (laughs) you would find all clones all over the place. Um, But I never knew him in the flesh. He was gone before uh, I came along. So I didn't have a vast reservoir of dialogue uh, to fall back on. It was just this kind of thing that was out there, uh, always hovering. It's so interesting when when you talk about finding a piece of clothing that used to be Paul's and you put that on. And that was so heartwarming for me to see that there was still pieces of Paul that was hidden in at the cabin. Yeah, there's not much of left. And I think that I have what there is. And I, I'm pretty much listed in, uh, in home waters. You know, very few things. He did not leave much behind. But he did leave that behind. And was, as I look back on it, uh, I had my own reaction to it as a little boy. Uh, I put it on and I wore it and wore it and wore it and loved it because it was part of the mysticism. But it really uh, made my father shudder. Really? To have that. My brother's shirt. Well, I mean, there are different ways to read that line. (laughs) And he read it with this deep shudder almost. he would tell stories about Paul occasionally, but they, he was very careful about it. Paul had some seriously uh, bad behavior. But I remember one time, I tell the story in the book about Paul chasing the rabbit yes. down the road. And the rabbit makes the turn and he doesn't. And Dad told me that story where it happened. You know, on a section road. Uh, and... It was a kind of a, I don't know if I should be telling you this story, because this is not a model for future behavior. <laughs> it was, it's not a bad story. So there were several like that that he told. Uh, but it was always it was a sense of wistfulness about it, a sense of real, unrecoverable loss. Yes. Uh, that was not in all his life. Um, you really expand on who Paul was. Um, and also we get to kind of know what happened to Paul, which in my opinion, you really touch on the family dynamics in home waters and how much Norman really wanted to help Paul, who was heading to a very difficult, um, dark path. 
Was it difficult writing Paul's story or did it feel like you were able to conclude on the life of Paul? Uh, it certainly doesn't feel included. Yeah. Uh, I have been collecting material on Paul for, uh, in a serious professional way for a very long time. Uh, and that's where a lot of that repertorial stuff in the book comes from. I did a final tour in Chicago uh, in my journalistic career. I worked for the Chicago Tribune. And when I went back there, I was older, I was in my 40s, and uh, I had a serious interest in trying to dig up the facts about this guy and get rid of some of the burdensome, mystical stuff. Uh, so I talked to people who knew him. I talked to his former employer, George Morgenstern, at the University of Chicago. Uh, I, my dad was there for some of that, and I'll tell you very frankly, he didn't join in very much. Was, that family <laughs> didn't talk about his problems very easily. <laughs> yeah. He says that, and really, really true. Uh, but I did talk to a lot of people who knew him, and I quote several of them uh, in the book. Now, I gathered a lot of documents about it, but I, were, I was one who was privy to them because I, by then, by the time my dad was gone, uh, and I was still doing it, I was as close as Paul's closest living relative. Uh, and then I put it away. I said, I never intended to write this stuff. Uh, I wanted to find out for my own purposes uh, what it, how he applied, and uh, I did. And I think that the, the account of it in, uh, in Home Waters is a credible account. It is not a definitive account. You don't say, well, we know who killed him. Uh, you don't know who killed him. Uh, but I think you know what the circumstances were uh, pretty clearly, and what was true and what was not true uh, about uh, representations. Uh, elsewhere around here. But I, what I've thought about since then, and let me pick up on what you said earlier about trying to help uh, somebody. Paul has a legacy uh, that far outweighs uh, what he established in life or failed to establish in life. as a very important and worthwhile legacy. Mm -hmm. And he achieves it through whatever runs through it. And I hope in part through my book. The legacy is this, that there is a vast number of people out there, a whole community of brothers and sisters who have tried to help wayward siblings, who have offered important parts of themselves free and have been refused, and have had their siblings walk away from them and continue destructive behavior. And for them to know that there is a huge community of like-minded people who have suffered through that and will suffer through it all their lives is an important piece of legacy. I know that it's true because I hear about it a lot. My dad got letters like that all the time. Your brother was just like my sister. She wrote, we tried to help her and we couldn't touch her. She was a New York girl, <laughs> and we lost her. Well, what does this have to do with, you know, uh, a fist-devoted uh, journalist from Montana who got beat to death in an alley in Chicago? Everything. Yes. Because the pattern is exactly the same. That's Paul's legacy. And it's, uh, it's a good one. Yeah, no, and I think you touched on it beautifully. And like you said, I mean, there is a community of people who 
who need to hear hear that you know the realities of life is beautiful but it can also be pretty you are not alone. yes exactly Sorry. you know in your book home waters and i have my book right up here um one one set there was a on page 241 um i kept rereading this sentence that you wrote and it's uh memory can and should be more than a bridge to the past it's also a way to see yourself as a thread in a broad fabric long in the making. Um, and I just thought that was so well written because it made me think it's like, you know, our memory of the people that we have in our family, you know, it's not about our past. It's it's about family and these connections. And I'm just curious on is is did I interpret that sentence correctly? Um, about the memory of the bridge is to like our family, like your sons, um, Danny and John Fitz. Well, the book is dedicated to Dan, John Fitz, Noah, Jacob, Jody, and their families. And basically, that's the answer, and the answer is yes. Yeah. You interpreted it correctly. Uh, they are the future generation. Uh, we talked all, all this stuff about the past, uh, going back to the early 19th century. Uh, bringing it up to date. But, you know, it's also those people. They're the ones who carry it on. And uh, that's why I wrote those. Uh, what I did about memory. Uh, I wrestled with that from the time I first started writing the book. And I wrote it very badly uh, to begin with. And at much too great old things. <laughs> and finally, I uh, got it down to what you just read. Uh, but I think you've interpreted it. Yeah, because I think about with I have two young kids and um, my husband learned fishing from his father who his father taught him. And I was like, I think what we're teaching them is um, trying to observe being outside in these traditions that we love and being outdoors and also like our family ties. And I feel like Sealy Lake and home waters is exactly that for you and your family at Sealy Lake. And, um, we were just talking earlier, which we haven't got recorded, but you are going to be making your way to back to Sealy Lake at your cabin. Correct. At some point. Yes. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do uh, in Montana this year. uh, Do you have to do any um, oiling of the of the logs? I'm hoping to get that done. I'm hoping to get the oiling done this year uh, because last year obviously was a year off, and we're getting a little late anyway. But so much oil, (laughs) linseed oil and turpentine have been put on those logs over the last century. How long does that take you to do? Well, it used to take a week because uh, my dad and uh, whoever he could corral into helping him uh, did it all by hand. We would do it with a rag, and we had pans that were used decade after decade, uh, clothing that you, know, you get all soaked with linseed oil. It's actually, it's kind of nice. Uh, linseed oil is wonderful stuff. Uh, but now I use a spray bottle. To put those okay, sure. And you have to put plastic all over the windows and, and whatnot. So I can get it done in two or three days. So now that the book has been published, uh, how are you feeling? Are like, what are you feeling right now that everyone's kind of coming back, getting their reviews, which have been all amazing? Like, how are you feeling being in waiting for um, people's other like the public's reviews? 
Uh, I've been getting some public reviews from uh, early readers and from people who are reading it now. I'll be honest with you, I'm having trouble with it. Uh, this is not the kind of reaction that my books, my other five books have gotten. Uh, people do not say, uh, I love your book, uh, and it has beautiful writing. Uh, that's what they're saying about this. I'm not writing them before. Uh, I, my other books are about fires uh, in which uh, mostly worthy young people uh, have been burned to death. And uh, they are well regarded in the fire community and elsewhere. Uh, but nobody rushes up to me and says, uh, I loved your book <laughs> about how those young people got killed. I mean, that's not the reaction. Secondly, uh, I didn't realize how much I had taken on uh, A River Runs Through. As I say, I didn't set out to write a memoir, yeah. uh, let alone something that is now described as a companion book to The River Runs Through. So you have to think a little bit here, uh, because that's what I'm doing. Uh, suddenly, you know, you're being compared to one of what I think is one of the most beautiful books ever written. And uh, it, it's just, uh, it's beyond uh, anything that I've uh, had before. And I'm having a little trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's seriously, I, I feel though reading the book actually amplified A River Runs Through It for me. Because reading A River Runs Through It was the story, but I feel like Home Waters is is the pairing that goes behind it even deeper. Like it explores the reasons behind these people and also the the place, Missoula, Montana, Sealy, that was called home, that meant so much to you. So I feel like it built it up. And I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, which book should I have read first? Because it doesn't, I don't know. I, I was like, well, thinking about it, I was like, if I read Home Waters before I ever read A River's Run Through It, I'd probably have this really good backbone of like understanding the waters and also understanding about the Blackfoot, Lewis and Clark and the Burns, you know, like getting a little bit of family history as well as Montana history. And then to learn about uh, River Runs Through It. So what's so great about these two books is that they really are interchangeable. Like you could read one and then read the other one and they'd work they pair so well together so one didn't take away either either one is how i kind of gathered both of those books well that's uh, what people are saying as i say it's not it's not intentional but it certainly it happened and at some point subconsciously it had to become intentional i mean i had a dip i mean i can remember thinking oh here we go i'm gonna have to tell the story about uh, the first time I read A River Runs Through It, my wife and I did, uh, when it was in TypeScript. Uh, I'm wading right into uh, A River Runs Through It here, and it's unavoidable, so just wait in, do it. But that's one thing. It's one, uh, what I'm saying is it's one thing to do this, yeah. and it's another to realize you've done it. <laughs> and I had a conversation with my editor uh, a week or so ago, and he says, I think you've done it. Yes. And I thought, well, what does he mean by that? Done what? I mean, I've got the book in on deadline, and we got it published, <laughs> and that isn't what he meant. No. And that's what I'm having to kind of evolve into understanding. Where do we go with that? Where do I go with that? Do you feel like you're kind of channeling the same 
feelings that maybe your dad was going through when he had A River Runs Through It being published? Do you feel like you can kind of reflect and look back and be like, oh my gosh, dad, like this is exactly, I know, I know your feelings <laughs> when A River Runs Through It came out. Well, I frankly haven't progressed far enough to have made that connection, but I think you're right. I think that there, there is a lot of that. I, I was thinking about it today, and I, I haven't thought it all the way through. What I was thinking about today was that with my dad, uh, the evolution of uh, the reception of River Run Seward was very slow. It took years. You know, it started out uh, with a press run of 1,500 copies. We started out with a press run of 16,000 copies. So that tells you what's happening here. This thing is happening at light speed. And it's, uh, I'm not a kid. <laughs> I don't think that fast anymore. Uh, so uh, I know how he felt about it. He felt that he had done, uh, that he had honored his brother, that he had done what there was for him to do. And then he had a second thought which is he had time left in life. He was five years younger uh, when I asked when the River Run Shoot came out. And he then turned to another book, Young Men of Fire. Well, I've already written five fire books. And I've got another one that I've been working on, but it's been very difficult. I would really like to finish it. It's important when I'm working on it with a partner. I couldn't do it all alone. There's too much work involved. Uh, so I've got a follow-on project. So. The parallels keep mounting up, but in my case, it's all happening extremely fast. And I'm not sure that that's all that healthy for me. Uh, You kind of touch base on when your dad um, got done with The River Runs Through It and was writing The um, Man on Gulch and how he just couldn't go fishing anymore. He was so overwhelmed with trying to finish this book. And so is that how you're kind of feeling, like making sure that you're taking time to also go fishing and not get stuck with not enjoying the present time? Well, when I started uh, doing books, I did an awful lot of fishing because uh, I was off on my own. That was my chief source of entertainment. I did 30 to 50 days uh, fishing a year, (laughs) but I haven't done that for a great many years because I've been so involved and I can work. Uh, And it gets harder as you get older. Uh, to wear out a little quicker. Uh, and frankly, you've got more to do. Yeah. Uh, it isn't just the one book where you're an unknown writer, uh, people leave you alone, uh, you can concentrate. I've got to concentrate on a lot of different things. Uh, it takes me an hour and a half or so on, to two hours a day on emails. Uh, and I like to respond to people. I like to be in contact with people. But that eats away at, at your work day. So I haven't fished as much as I would like to, but I still get out. I've been out a couple of times this year up in the Blue Ridge to a favorite stream. Uh, I intend to fish in Montana. But I won't, I would bet that I don't get to 30 to 50 days this year. I would like to come close. You know, I was going to ask you because it's also a fly fishing podcast. Is there a fishing story that you can give me that didn't make the cut in home waters? Oh, Lord. Uh, there's some photographs in home waters yes. that are not explained. Let me tell you that story, because that's a good story. Okay, I'm pulling out my book. Which picture am I looking at? Uh, there are three of them. Uh, black and white. Uh, I'm young and tall, and uh, I'm fishing with my uncle, Cap. Yes, yes, let's do that. That is great. We're on a raft there, and I just say, please notice 
the sinking raft. Okay, <laughs> here's the story on that one. The Forest Service had opened up uh, a road into the backcountry for a timber sale. And in the course of doing that, the, uh, they had opened up access to this uh, alpine lake, which was loaded with, among other things, railing and a lot of uh, uh, rainbow trout uh, and cutthroat. And we went up there to go fishing when almost no one had fished it. I had never caught a railing, so my dad and I and uh, my uncle Ken and his wife Donnie uh, took a truck, rough road, and got in there. And there was this storm coming in. You could see it coming in. Well, to fish these little mountain you really need a raft. You'll see in one of those pictures, I'm actually using a spinning rod uh, when I'm standing on the shore. Uh, I put that away and got my fly rod out once we got on the raft. This raft was about uh, eight inches underwater all the way around. So there were two of us on it. And my Uncle Ken was one of the most fun people I've ever been around in my life. He just knew how to have a good time in life. And so we took one rod the two of us, and one pole to push the raft out there. So the guy who was on the high end of the raft that was out of the water would cast and catch a fish. And the fish were moving like crazy because the storm was coming in. And then he would, the guy who caught the fish would take a step a little farther along and the leverage would shift. And you'd pass the rod and the pole back and forth and then suddenly Ken would be on the high end and he would catch and we kept this up and we caught all kinds of fun. And then finally they were yelling at us from shore, you got to get out of there because the storm is coming in with lightning and you don't want to be out there on the water no. in the middle of the lightning storm. And so we laughed and did it. We did the right thing. But you'll see us there standing next to the truck and we're clowning around <laughs> pretending to catch each other with this rod and the mask. It was just one of the most fun days um, I've ever had. And a fun day with Ken Burns was a normal day with Ken Burns. Uh, that's what you always had. Uh, and I fished with him as much as I could. We'd go out on the Blackfoot together sometimes. And you, in the family tradition was you all fish separately and get together at the end of the day. I'd always fish if I could with Ken. And I'll tell you, there were times, honest to God, where we wound up com in comradely fashion, casting to the same fish. Let's see if you can get him. No, I'll see if you can get him. <laughs> like that. And that is the antithesis of the whole McLean fishing ethic, which is if you're partnering, catching a lot of fish, you throw rocks in the hole so he can't. Yes. Uh, that's not a bad fishing story. No, that is a great fishing story. And I love it that we have the pictures on it to just to have it for proof too oh gosh so was ken a lot more laid back angler than your father norman uh he was a good fisherman uh and he was a pot fisherman i mean they lived in wolf creek and the prickly pear was right there and they were they ate a lot of meals out of the, out of the prickly pear uh, one of the fun things that they did with their son bob was they'd take some potatoes and drive up wolf creek which is a much smaller piece of water than the little prickly pear. And they would uh, hand fish for trout. You put your hand in the water and wait for one to swim over your hand and flip it out. And that would be dinner. Uh, Ken had uh, a 30 odd six rifle and one box of shells. 
And for I don't know how many years it was, it was like 25 or 30 years, you got an elk every year and never bought a new box of shells. Wow. One shell, one elk, <laughs> year after year. I mean, we were... We're Scots. Yeah, that's am- <laughs> that's amazing. I just shot my first bull, and I I think it took me three three bullets to to bring that elk down. <laughs> well, you want to put them down hard. I mean, if, you know, if there's anything left, put in the coup de gras. But you didn't bother with that. It was one shot. Bull. Gosh! And then, did you guys celebrate with a McLean clock- cocktail afterwards? Yes, that was uh, my invention, which my father took over and. Uh, uh, promulgated everywhere. Uh, I've been kind of, I've tried to find out in the course of writing Home Waters where I got the idea for the McLean. Uh, the McLean is uh, hot, strong tea. Uh, and I used to put sugar in it, my dad, <laughs> mixed with uh, about a half a pint of bourbon whiskey. And you do this after you've been out on, on the water cold and tired and so on and has, it has a real kick um, and I believe that I picked it up somewhere as a drink that uh, uh, people from New Zealand, mountaineers from New Zealand, real tough guns uh, did loggers and mountaineers but I've tried it out on a couple of friends of mine who are New Zealanders and loggers and tough guys they say no, never heard of it so maybe it was uh, just a, an invention of the mind Anyway, my dad picked it up and introduced it to a lot of other people, and it got the name uh, of McLean. So if you mix hot tea, you've got to keep it separate. Yes. Because otherwise the, the alcohol flares off, and it uh, takes down the temperature of the tea. If you mix them right at the end, uh, it's a drink with a lot of punch. Well, I bet you now, after you have shared the recipe, especially in your book, there'll be a bunch of Montana bars hosting that drink cocktail. I bet you, I bet you anything. Cause if there's anything that anglers around Montana, they like their cocktails after, uh, after fishing. I hadn't thought of that. I started that. You know? Yeah. You might, you might have to, you might have to make sure you go to those bars and be like, Hey, if you're going to use my cocktail, give me some of the, Give me at least a free cocktail in that in that sense. But yeah, I mean, if there's anything anglers here in Montana, the drinks help make those fish look a little bit bigger afterwards, right? They grow. <laughs> they, they grow with every shot of <laughs> So, um, you know, I have a question because um, I know that Sealy Lake Cabin, you said uh, it five generations now is has the cabin kind of my grandchildren yep that's fine so how do you guys manage who gets to go to the cabin and i'm asking this because my cabin in northern wisconsin i guess i'm the third generation for the cabin and we also have grandkids i'm like how are we going to share this small cabin i mean it's two you know two bed two bedrooms one bath so i need to get some tips on how do you manage to share with everybody well, we have a legal counsel. Uh, my sister is... Well, I finally came to that. I mean, yeah. it's a very good question. You know, I'm going to be there in those days. I don't want anybody else somewhere on there. That kind of stuff. But my sister is a lawyer, and she finally said, look, we've got to have a spreadsheet that where people sign up. And so she keeps she's the keeper of the spreadsheet. And I, I have... What you've got to have is a little mutual forbearance. Right, right. Um, I've got... Uh, particular needs, um, and I have to be out there. 
But I try to be out there early and late when I'm not really competing with everybody else. And I leave that prime time, the last half of July and all of August, uh, to let everybody else uh, have that. And if people want to come while I'm out there and I'm working, I'm just one guy, you know, I can go somewhere else for a while. And I've done that. But with people who have young children and jobs that uh, where they have a limited amount of vacation time, this becomes a real problem. Yeah. And what you do is about uh, February and March, you start, people should talk to each other uh, about this you know, and, and get it straightened out ahead of them. Yeah. Oh, it's a real problem. I mean, it, it really is because, I mean, everybody wants to go back home and feel the waters. And um, I mean, that's exactly what my cabin is. And in northern Wisconsin, it was, you know, I grew up in Colorado Springs and the cabin was a place for us to get away from the chaos of home and whatnot. And I remember my mom once told me, she's like, the cabin is for no arguing and no fighting. Like, it's for us to be a family. So I kind of was just kind of curious. I was like, well, how are we all going to do that? When there's three of us and we all have grandkids, like how are we all going to keep the peace out there? So um, that was a really personal good advice, too. Um, interesting enough, I was actually just at Wolf Creek last weekend and I was reading Home Waters um, on Wolf Creek. Uh, and I just thought to myself how great it was to learn more about the Byrne family. Um, was that really something that you really wanted to make sure got more explored, um, other than just the McLeans, but to also learn more about your, your mother? Uh, you're very smart. Uh, well, that's, that was smart. Yes. The answer to that is absolutely yes. Very consciously. Uh, one of my cousins came to me a few years ago and said, look, there's been so much about your family. Uh, how about something about the Burns family? She's a Burns. And I said, eventually I said, well, you know, Ken Burns and I, did a Burns family Wolf Creek history together. Uh, after his wife Dottie, whom we all adored, uh, died, he felt you know, lost and lonely. And he started to write a family history, and he wasn't a writer, he didn't need to be. Had about a half a, a notebook page done. So I sat down with him, I said, let's pull this together. So we did. And I wrote about a 15-page history of the Burnses and, uh, and Wolf Creek, and I gave it to my dad to look at and to correct. So it was uh, an edited version uh, of the story. And that was one of the things when I said, you know, at the beginning I realized I had this big uh, sheet of stuff. I had a big file uh, of material uh, that I could use in the book. That was one of the things that I had put together and forgotten about and recovered and then I used in the book. And initially, I wrote a very long history of Wolf Creek and the Home Waters. And my editor, I sat down and I said, can we, you know, trim this down a little bit? And so I did. And it was stuff that didn't have much to do with, or anything to do with the Burns. Uh, but it's still a pretty substantial history in that town, uh, which is an interesting one. It was, you know, a spur, a uh, railroad spur town. Uh, it's the mouth of the, uh, Wolf Creek is the mouth of the Dearborn once you're driving your sheep and cattle. Uh, and that was its raison d'etre for a long time. And uh, my grandfather, John Henry Burns, did very well uh, as a storekeeper there for many years until they paved the road down to Helena. Suddenly people didn't want to pay his prices and they could go down there. He had a lot of faithful customers, uh, but business was not what he wanted. Wolf Creek is such an amazing 
town and I loved I mean I just love even learning more about it because there is you do get to learn a lot in Missoula you kind of go down to the mall and there's the old time pictures but also getting just a really good read about the Burns family who had such an influential to the community as well was just um, I loved it it was very well received I felt like and just kind of refreshing to even just learn more about how your the roots of your family and I think that was just very well written, um, John. So thanks for sharing your family story. Um, and I love. I want to talk about this. How did you figure out with the photo? How did you know this is the photo that you're going to use for your book, Home Waters? Was that hard trying to figure out the right? Or just like the cover? Sorry, the cover. Yeah, the cover was uh, to me it was a slam dunk. Uh, I, I got hooked up with this young guy, Alec Underwood of the Montana Wildlife Federation. And uh, I liked him so much uh, without having met him I, that I invited him to go fishing. And if anybody knows me, they know that I don't do that. You know, I'm very picky about who I go fishing with. But he sounded like a genuine article. So I said, uh, why don't we meet and uh, go down to Scotty Brown's Bridge late in the day uh, when everybody's pulling their rigs out of there. And it's too late for anybody to start from there. We'll go back fish. So we went down there and we started fishing and uh, got sitting on rocks and talking to each other. And he said, you know, John, let me tell you a story. He said, I'm from upstate New York. And when I was a teenager, I read a river runs through it. I decided I had to come to Montana. So I did, and I've been in Montana ever since. And the first place I ever fished the Blackfoot River was here, right where we're fishing tonight. I thought, wow, that's really something. And he brought a camera, and he took a lot of photographs. And uh, a lot of them are in the book. And a lot of them were used uh, as the basis of the wood engravings in the book. And he said to me, John, he said, I'd really like you to see one photograph that I took that I think you'll like because from the way you're describing your book, it sounds to me as though it has the same spirit. He said, fine, show it to me. So he showed me the book, the, the photograph that is now on both the front and the back cover uh, of Home Waters. And the second I looked at it, I said, that's, that's the cover of the book uh, because it is perfect or the tone, uh, kind of brownish, mystical, there's a little fog, but it's the big river, big boulders, big water. Uh, and I had no trouble uh, convincing uh, Peter Hubbard, my editor, to use it. In fact, he enhanced it. I thought he was just going to have it just on the front, but Peter wrapped it around so it's on the back as well, so you get the whole picture. And then he had this genius idea of taking pictures that I've taken of George Kronenberg's flies and turning them into wood engravings and using that on the cover as well as as an icon in the book. Oh, that's one of George's, that's one of George's flies? That's one of George's flies, absolutely. Yeah. I think the book took an awful lot of attention and work, and frankly, it did not come cheap. Uh, the type font, the quality of the paper, the wood engravings, the photo, 16-page photo insert using color. And we went high-end on the whole thing. Uh, and I'm just tickled to death about it. But that's Alec Underwood's photograph of the mystical Blackfoot. And I made the mistake a couple of days ago of writing a note and saying, gee, I would like to know exactly where you took that. Bad mistake. Why is that? Well, now I know exactly where he took it. I don't want it to have that kind of a solid reference. I want it to be a metaphor 
not a realistic portrait. It reminds me of, um, in A River Runs Through It, Norman writes, stories of life are often more like rivers than books. And I feel that that picture completely says that perfectly because um, the river is, you know, stories of life are often a lot more like rivers than they are books. There's calm waters, there's eddies, there's, I thought that that quote from Norman from A River Runs Through It fit so perfectly well with the cover. And now that you tell me that's George's fly, that even, I mean, wow, what a good way to just encompass everything from your family and friends um, from past. Yeah, there are layers on the book. You can peel the layers on the book. And I think keep getting more out of it. Like the, the story of the, of the photographs of that trip to the to the Alpine Lake with Ken, or the, what's actually on the cover, or what went into the wood engravings. We haven't talked about that. But an awful lot went into that. Background on that. And uh, I talked to the editor and said, I think we ought to try to do the same thing here as a conscious imitation. Uh, that's one place where you can consciously imitate the river runs through it in a very positive way. Actually, ran down the guy who had done them, or a river runs through it, more than 40 years ago. Uh, a guy named Robert Williams. He lives in uh, Hyde Park. He's retired in the University of Chicago neighborhood. And there were a lot of questions about those wood engravings. I thought that they were basically tracings of uh, images that my father had collected in Montana. And they're not. They are created images that Williams came up with based on uh, photographs and other stuff that my dad collected and gave to him. The cover of the first edition of A River Runs Through has a big high bluff and a river uh, at the foot of the bluff. And people yes. wonder forever, where is this on the black Where's that hole on the black Or is it the black <laughs> It must be, you know, on the gossip or something. And so we talked to Williams about it. And he said, I made it up. It isn't anywhere. It isn't in Wyoming. It isn't in Montana. It's in my brain. It's beautiful. It works. Yes. Uh, so we straightened all that out. Then we got a hold of this engraver, Wesley Bates, and uh, he just got into it. He liked the book. Uh, he knew, knew the subject. When you look at the one of Fathers and Sons, where it's my dad on the shore, my son and I out on a raft fishing, you'll see that the forest is very correctly portrayed there as coming right down to the edge of the lake in a lot of different places. That's the way those little alpine lakes are. And they're held to fish because there's no backcasting. So sometimes you take a spinning rod or you do what we did in that case and get out on a raft. But he knew that. Bates knew that. He was familiar with that. And I got him to send me the original sketch of that. Not the one that was uh, pretty up for the final edition of a book, but the original sketch is really nice. And I gave it to my son, who's in the image, uh, for his birthday. Wow, what an incredible gift. Um, now, I know we have the anniversary of A River Runs Through It. It's 45 years. Aren't we also close to the anniversary of the movie? Yeah, next year is the anniversary. Did you Did you love the movie? Uh, I wouldn't say I loved it. I admire it. Yeah. Uh, what I like especially about it is uh, I love the book. And I know a lot of my friends who are fishermen are kind of picky about the movie. I really yeah. like the movie. 
uh, I think it's as faithful as uh, any movie can try to be. But the best part of it is that it's for everybody. Uh, yes. I know that families can go to see it. Uh, there's adult content there, very adult content. The children all uh, like Paul, uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, they sympathize with him, they identify with him, but they know that his behavior is going to lead somewhere bad. And when yeah. it does, they don't have to see it. Yeah. They don't have to see the violence. And I think that that was the way my dad did it. And it, Redford uh, didn't violate that. He enhanced it, if anything, and did a beautiful job of it. Uh, and I don't know how somebody, what could you have done that was better if you didn't turn it into a fishing document? Right, right. I mean, nothing so, is ever uh, better than the book. Yeah, considering what uh, the industry is and so on, I don't know how anybody could have handled it much better. Agreed, agreed. Um, well, I just can't thank you enough, John, for joining me today. It's been an amazing pleasure. And I want, um, I know we're can, um, I went to fact and fiction, walked over and grabbed my signed first edition from you. Um, but where else can people get books if you're not in Missoula and you can't go to your local, um, your bookshop? Uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, uh, have the book and they're selling them. That's really the best place to, to go. If somebody wants something really special, you know, an inscription or something like that, I do provide a few of those uh, in special cases. Uh, but uh, you'd have to get in touch with me. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Uh, I am encouraging people <laughs> to use Amazon, to use Barnes & Noble, and their independent bookstores. You know, an independent yes. bookstore can order one for you. And uh, the publisher has a supply of signed copies. So it's not so the only place you can get an autograph is with me. That's not true. Uh, these are independent bookstores can usually get that. Uh, if you have a good relationship with your indie, uh, that's one place. If you don't, Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, deal with this all the time. They're doing a splendid job, uh, and they are available. Well, or maybe, maybe, just maybe, John, I just get to meet you in Missoula or Sealy and I hand you my book and, and get a really good um, note or note from you. That would just make my lifetime if I got to meet you in person and talk more about this book. But I greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk with me on the February room and learn more about home waters and your family and the history of Montana. Well, it's been a pleasure, Laura. I appreciate being invited. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.